Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Straight Shoot with Pistol Pete. Today, I have the pleasure to be joined by Atlanta Braves radio play-by-play announcer Jim Powell. Jim was recently inducted in late January into the Georgia Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame. It features names as Tom Brokaw, as well as Ernie Johnson Sr. So, Jim, thanks for joining me today. How are you? How's the family? I know these are crazy times we're living in. Uh, how's everyone doing? Everybody's great, Pete. I appreciate you asking. Um, The girls are scattered across the southeast. My three daughters and my wife and I have been bunkered down here, but they come and visit us every once in a while. And nobody's gotten sick. And we've we've actually made the most of it. We played a lot of tennis. You know, exercised a lot. um, Played board games for the first time in a long time. I'm I'm sure a lot. Most everyone has done about the same thing. I I got better at Call of Duty also. I, have, I don't play Call of Duty. I stick to the sports games. I never really could get into Call of Duty. I was never very good at it, but I know a lot of my friends play it. So you've gotten good at it? All right, well, let's not get carried away. I've gotten better at it. <laughs> so the first thing I want to ask you is about that Hall of Fame induction. Some of the names that are in there, uh, pretty spectacular names in the broadcasting industry. So what did that mean to you? Well, that everything. I mean, it was it's it's the greatest honor of my life to date, with the exception of marrying my wife and, and witnessing the births of my three daughters. Um, I was very surprised. I felt like, honestly, my first reaction as I'm still on the phone uh, listening to to uh, Bob Houghton, who's the head of the Georgia Association of Broadcasters, give me this news, and I was thinking, I'm not old enough to be in a Hall of Fame. I mean. I, I, maybe they're trying to tell me something. You know, you've got no point. It's time to usher you out. But we'll give you a little. We'll give you a parting gift. But no, it was it was it was awesome. I was a uh, part of the student chapter of the GAB when I was at UGA, and uh, I've known Bob Houghton for a long time, and and some other folks with the GAB, and they were very complimentary, of course. And um, uh, you know, and like you said, and I tell my kids all the time, you can tell a lot about a person by the company they keep. In this case, the company had no choice in the matter because I came along behind them. But um, for all my, my Braves uh, guys, Ernie Johnson Sr., as you mentioned, Pete Van Weeren, Skip Carey, um, you know, the, the, uh, the legacy of, of Atlanta Braves broadcasting includes people like John Sterling and, um, and, and Dave O'Brien. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously I grew up a Braves fan here in Atlanta. So it was... Uh, it was incredible to, you know, if I was going to pick one Hall of Fame to go into, if they were only going to let me in one, it would be the Georgia Association Broadcasters Hall of Fame. So I was very stunned. I was very excited. Um, I was also very excited for my family. Doing 27 years of, you know, the constant travel over seven months, it's, it turns everyone's uh, life upside down inside our house. And if I wouldn't have been able to do it without my wife uh, and, and her, the job she's done. So, you know, when I spoke at the, the um, ceremony, I, I mainly talked about my family because um, they were, they're the people that made it possible. They were all in on baseball, and if they're not, then you're not going to be in baseball very long. So, um, But, yeah, I think, I mean, Ernie Harwell's in the GAB Hall of Fame. Um, Steve Holman, the play-by-play voice of the Hawks, who I worked with uh, as an intern in high school. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the list is – and then there are tons of incredible news people, other – you know, areas of broadcasting. Um, that was another cool thing about it. It wasn't just a baseball thing or just mm-hmm. a sports thing, but it was a broadcasting thing. So I'm very, very proud of it. Yeah, congratulations once again. That's a tremendous accomplishment. I think it was 
when I, from what I saw, I looked up on the website, there was only, there was less than a hundred people uh, in that hall of fame. So it's very, a very prestigious honor. So uh, congratulations once again on that. I appreciate that, Pete. I think I was like the second youngest to be inducted. So that's another, and, and, and the youngest sportscaster. So, yeah, I guess they just ran out of good broadcasters. So <laughs> I want to take you back to your high school days. You went to high school in Georgia, Roswell High School. And that was really where you got started as far as broadcasting is concerned. You had an internship there at a local radio station. What did that experience teach you and help you grow uh, as you went on to college and into the future? Well, it was everything, really. I mean, it was the genesis of my, my career. Um, being able to, to work in the, the newsroom at WGST, a very prestigious news station in Atlanta. Um, the internship I, I earned through things I did at school. And then they eventually you get to a certain point and they say, you can intern it wherever you want. Where, where do you want to go? And I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll hang out with the Braves broadcasters. They said, well, not every, anywhere. I mean, you can't exactly do that. But so they lined me up with WGST. But you know, there were stellar sportscasters there too. Brad Nessler was there at the time, and Steve Holman, as I mentioned, Hall of Fame Hawks broadcaster was there. And I got to work in the newsroom. I, I learned how to cut up tape. I learned how to edit and write copy. And I got a lot of great advice from the veteran news and sports people uh, at WGST at that time because I was still eyeing my, you know, what course to go for college. I grew up in a Georgia Tech household. Mm -hmm. Georgia Tech's not really known for their broadcasting. And I knew that I wanted to be a broadcaster. I knew that from a, an early age. So, uh, you know, they gave me a lot of great advice about what I should do. In fact, the, the, the best piece of advice I got was first day you're on campus, go to the student radio station and sign up for a job. And so I did. And of course, the, everybody wants to be a sportscaster. So the sports department was full. Um, so I did news and I was a DJ and you know, you don't get paid anything and you work in weird hours, but you make great friends that I'm still friends with uh, to this day. You get great experience. To me, uh, broadcasting is a lot like learning to be a pilot. You have to kind of log a certain amount of airtime before everything smooths out and you, and you sort of know what you're supposed to do and you don't have, you're not in, in jeopardy of panicking or doing something dumb. Um, so that gave me a lot of that airtime that I needed to, to help begin the process of trying to smooth myself out. From high school, you went on to the University of Georgia, where you graduated in 1986. But during that time you were there, and your freshman year is 1982, Herschel Walker won the Heisman Trophy in 1982 with the Georgia Bulldogs. Two years prior to that, Georgia won the national championship with Herschel Walker as a freshman. So you had a lot of cool things happening during the time you were at school or about to go to school. What do you remember most from your time at Georgia? Being a Georgia Tech fan in a foreign land, you know, I, I, like I said, both my parents went to Georgia Tech. And uh, uh, so I grew up a, a huge Georgia Tech fan. So I didn't like Georgia, but I liked their broadcasting school. So that's why I went there. But, you know, Herschel uh, and, and the early Bulldogs teams from the 80s, um, they, they won me over pretty quickly. And now I'm a diehard, you know, <laughs> a Bulldog. I met, met my wife at Georgia. Um, two of my three daughters went to Georgia. So um, they, I was more than a convert. But, yeah, I, I just remember, I, you know, I worked, I worked on some ancillary shows with, regarding sports. I eventually became the sports director of the student radio station and then got hired by the flagship station for the Bulldog Sports Network in Athens, WRFC. So I, that was when I first got my first dollar for broadcasting. And uh, so I worked a lot in, 
in school. In, in many ways, I feel like my main education was not in a classroom, but it was actually in a working atmosphere where I got to meet a lot of different people, learn a lot of different things from them. Um, and again, continue to get experience to try and find who I was as a broadcaster, which, you know, Pete, that's one of the challenges I think for, for broadcasters is we all grew up like liking sports and having particular favorite sportscasters, but you don't want to try and imitate those people. You need to find your own way because nobody can imitate somebody for 162 games. So sooner or later, you've got to learn to be yourself and, and hope that that uh, personality uh, doesn't rub people the wrong way. You started out your first major league broadcasting job was with the Minnesota Twins at the major league level in 93 and 1994. How did that position come about? How did, did they reach out to you or you kind of applied for that job? Well, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, and it's one of my favorite stories of my career. When I was in Columbia, South Carolina from 86 to 96, basically, I was doing talk shows, working for University of South Carolina sports, doing uh, minor league baseball, both in Columbia and in Charlotte. And I had a great boss. I had a great owner of our radio station there. And at some point, it got to the point where he knew he couldn't pay me. I'd been there too long. You know, I was, I'd like outgrown the market. So I'd go in every year and I'd, you know, ask for a raise and say, I can't do anything this year. What do you want? And we, he'd find some way to make it right with me. One, one year it was uh, 18 holes of golf with Bob Costas. That was my raise for the year, um, which was pretty cool. But one of the things I did, he gave me flexibility to, to seek these other little things where I could continue to add experience, not just do the same thing for 10 years. And one of the things I did was I applied for, I applied for the Braves play-by-play uh, -play job in like 19, that would have been like 91, 92, after, actually it was probably about 1990, because that's I think when Dave O'Brien actually got the job. And I knew I wasn't qualified, but I wrote, and, and you know, your, your cover letter is supposed to be like three paragraphs and then get out, right? I mean, that's every class, every teacher teaches you that. Well, this was a unique situation, so I think I wrote about 12 pages. I mean, just went on and on about what I love about baseball, what I love about Atlanta, what I love about the Braves, you know, my background growing up and, and what I'd done so far as a broadcaster. And uh, he, Jim Ashbury was the program director of WSB, and he called me and said, you know, Bob, we're going to hire this Dave O'Brien guy who's got a little more experience than you, but I'd like you to come in and start working for us part-time on weekends. So, um, in fact, in 91, when the Braves took off, I was working Monday through Friday in Columbia, and Saturday and Sunday I would drive to Atlanta, stay with my mom, uh, work uh, pre- and post-game shows for the Falcons and the Braves and the Georgia Bulldogs, um, do scoreboard drop-ins, whatever they wanted me to do, I, I did. And then I'd, Sunday night I'd drive back to Columbia and do it all over again. So it was, it was a great experience. So it's kind of a long story. I should warn you of that. But Jim Ashbury, shortly thereafter, left for WCCO in Minneapolis and became the program director there. And the twins had their Hall of Fame voice, Herb Carneal, around mid-season had a heart valve go bad and he had to go have surgery and was gonna miss the rest of the year. So the twins and WCCO started bringing up their minor league broadcasters and giving them one week tryouts. And I think I was the third one to come in. Obviously I wasn't a twins minor league broadcaster, but I had this connection with Jim Ashbury. So he wanted to see how that worked. So, uh, you know, on a, on a, Friday night, I was working a Columbia Mets Class A baseball game. I got a phone call the next morning. On Sunday, I was in the Ritz-Carlton in Detroit. And on Monday, I was working a Major League Baseball game and meeting Ernie Harwell at Tiger Stadium. 
Wow. So that was a bizarre 48 hours that I'll never forget. Um, but at the end of my week, they ended up at offering me the rest of the season. They liked my work so much. And then the following year, the, the, my other mentor and other Twins broadcaster, John Gordon, um, he became ill and had a back issue. And so they needed to fill in again. That was the 94 strike year. So actually the strike cost me September and, and I had no promises of a major league job beyond this fill-in thing in Minnesota. So, I mean, I was, I remember being very upset with the, the whole strike as everybody was upset for a lot of reasons, but I, I wondered if I would ever work another major league game. You did work a couple of other major league games. Like 1996, you joined forces with Bob Euchre. I uh, spent 13 seasons as the voice of the Brewers broadcast. What was it like working with Bob? And then also in 1998, you were awarded the Wisconsin Sports Cast of the Year Award. What did that award mean? And then what was it like to work with Bob Euchre? Well, we could go all day. I don't know how much time you have on this podcast, but you got all day. I got all day. And, and we're on we're on the internet, so I can actually tell you all the stories if I wanted to. But then Bob would have me killed, so <laughs> I have to keep a few of them in reserve. But um, uh, the Sportscaster of the Year Award in Wisconsin was. Uh, a big surprise also and great honor. I mean, they're, they're great markets and great sports in Wisconsin, a lot of great uh, sportscasters. So um, that was, that really, that was huge for me. Um, and I think it solidified me in the market a little bit as well. Um, and, uh, and in terms of working with Bob, you know, Bob was great from day one and I had dinner with him before they hired me. And from day one, when we were working together in our first spring training, he just said, look, I don't care about nothing. I'm just here to have a good time, do the baseball game, and that's what I want you to do too. Just relax and just do the game and let's have some fun. And you know, a lot of people can kind of say that like, but then once you start working with them, they're not all that much, they're not loving the, you know, their surroundings that much, they're not having that much fun. But Bob is the epitome of fun and games. And he is always trying to make people laugh. He does not need a podium, a television camera, a radio microphone. Um, he doesn't need an audience. He can be just sitting on the bus with me and our radio producer, and he's, he's going into all kinds of funny things that only he can do because he's, he's the biggest com comedy genius I've ever met. Um, so it, it was great. It was a rollicking good time. I mean, I, I've never, never have and never will work, I'm sure, with a sportscaster who sat in the first row of the team bus Normally we're in the back and was first one off the bus every time. And I remember uh, one front office executive who wasn't on many trips came in and sat down next to Bob in the first row and nobody said anything. Bob, of course, wouldn't say anything, but eventually one of the other guys came over and tapped him on the shoulder and said, you need to move back. That's Bob's row. And, but that's the, that's the, the way everybody felt about Bob Uecker. I mean, he was really the face of the franchise at that time. Brewers were not very good when I was there most of the time. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was and still is a, a great honor to know Bob. He and I are, have only gotten to be better friends over the years. I know he made a phone call for me on, on my behalf with the Braves. I had never applied for another job besides the Brewers job. But this was my hometown. And my wife's parents were still alive. And they still lived in Atlanta. And they were getting too old to travel. And our kids were, we had three grandkids that we wanted to be spoiled. And so there were a lot of things that made me think long and hard about leaving Milwaukee, even though I, I really, truly loved my stay in Milwaukee. It was a great place to live and a great place to raise a family. 
living in New York and my whole life growing up in New York, I'm a huge Yankee fan. So CeCe Sabathia, to me, was one of the greatest Yankees I watched play. You had the chance in 2008 when you were still there for that magical season that the Brewers had, the wild card, the whole thing. He got traded over there uh, from Cleveland. What was that like watching CeCe pitch throughout the end of the season from the, you know, a little bit after the All-Star break and then to finish out the way he did pretty much carry that team on his back throughout the entire rest of that season. What was that like for you watching that? Pete, I still to this day, when people ask me my memories of baseball, the number one thing I talk about is the CC Sabathia run to the playoffs for the, for the Brewers. The Brewers hadn't made the playoffs in decades. And so the town was on its ear and then, and they're in it. And then they not only traded for Sabathia, but they traded for him early enough where they could get extra starts around the all-star break. And they could pitch him. He volunteered to pitch every fourth game. I mean, and he was going to be a free agent at the end of the season. So in today's world, you're like, no, you can't. I mean, you need more rest, not less. We can't have you getting hurt here down the stretch. He didn't care. He just basically said, here's my back. Climb on. And I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen a single individual take over a team the way he did, uh, both on and off the field. His presence in the clubhouse was enormous. But just the, the respect and admiration you have for somebody who is saying, no, give me the ball again. No, give me the ball again. And he's going nine innings every time almost. And beating, no matter who we were playing, he was going to beat them that day. And um, I have so much admiration for CC Sabathia. To, in my mind, for that year alone, he's a Hall of Famer. I agree with you. I mean, I saw him pitch for since 2009 when he joined the Yankees there up until he just recently retired and gave it – I was actually at the last game he pitched and when he pretty much threw his arm out and, you know, could barely walk off the field. So the cool thing about, like, about CC2 real quick, he was able to transform himself from a power pitcher and at the end of his career when he was throwing 91, 92 instead of 97, 98 when he used to throw – he was still able to get people out. So I thought that was really interesting to see how he was able to transform from more of a power pitcher to a finesse pitcher. Yeah, he had, he had the instincts that are required to be able to make that move. As we both know, we've watched a lot of pitchers try and transition from 98 to 91, and it's usually very ugly. Um, Felix Hernandez comes to mind from the last couple of years. Um, and he actually pitched very well for the Braves in spring training before they suspended it. But um, – yeah, CC, he, he wasn't just a guy with 98. He was a guy who knew how to pitch. Following that 2008 magical season for the Brewers, you joined forces with your Atlanta Braves there and Hall of Famer Don Sutton uh, on the radio broadcast. How did that opportunity come about? And when you had the chance to take that job there, was there even a second thought? Well, Milwaukee was a great place. So, yeah, we were – we were second guessing ourselves the whole time as we were going through the process. Um, unfortunately, two of my favorite broadcasters of all time and two guys that I feel like I'm a, a blend of in terms of my broadcasting style, Skip Carey and Pete Van Weeren both vacated the Braves booth at about the same time. Skip passed away during the previous season. And then Pete Van Weeren shocked everybody by retiring. He wasn't even to 65 years old yet but he had done a lot of baseball and, and he retired. And I, I told Pete, you know, when I moved to Atlanta, I, I got to know Pete a lot better. He would take me out to lunch and vice versa and um, periodically talk baseball and talk Braves. And 
Um, I, I love Pete. I'm still, we're still good friends with his, his wife, Elaine. Um, but uh, I told Pete many times, honestly, I wish you had stayed in the Braves booth and I would have just stayed in Milwaukee. Not because I'm, I don't, I, I'm not, that I'm sorry that I'm in Atlanta. That's not the point. The point is you're my guy and now I can't listen to you anymore. And secondly, it makes me very nervous to drive around Atlanta or to, to be on the air broadcasting a Braves game and think of you driving around Atlanta listening to me. That's creepy and it's scary. So, um, but he, he's a great guy. You know, he had, he had a great, wonderful family. And, but yeah, he, he, um, he popped out of there too. So it's like, when, when is there ever going to be a, a wide open Atlanta Braves booth? And I think the, the Braves sort of thought through their options and, um, they eventually made me an offer and we went back and forth a little bit and, and, uh, it happened. So, um, and it was also, you know, I'd worked with a catcher for all those years and I was excited about the possibility of working now with a hall of fame pitcher because I've got it, all my questions and lines of, uh, you know, questioning for, for Uke. Now I can flip that and, and really draw out the, the pitching side from Don. So I've, I feel like I got a great education from those two guys. The Braves right now are really an exciting team, have a really great young nucleus, Ozzy Albies, of course, Ronald Acuna Jr. So I want to talk about Acuna. Acuna, really bright young star, sometimes rubs people the wrong way with, you know, his antics on the field, you know, sometimes being nonchalant or, show, you know, bad flips, whatever it might be. From you getting a chance to maybe know him a little bit there and what is the type of player from your perspective that you've seen, how great can you think he can be? And then the second question, off the field, you know, out of baseball, uh, what kind of person is he in the community? You know, I think uh, it's, it's an excellent question. Um, here during the uh, shelter in place thing, we did a, uh, we debated back and forth. We hadn't had a dog in a while and we decided to go get a German Shepherd puppy. So we've been raising this German Shepherd puppy now for the last couple of months and I bring this up because I, I believe what we're seeing with Ronald Acuna, obviously it's not very pretty sometimes with the German Shepherd puppy, uh, which whose name is Murphy, by the way, and I'm sure you can guess why. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, they, they, they do things that when they're older dogs, they're not going to do. And I think Ronald, he, he doesn't speak great English at this point, which makes people it, it easier for people to misunderstand him. And they're, they're reading his body language and, reading things he does on the field and they're extrapolating from that certain conclusions about Ronald that aren't necessarily accurate. Uh, the people who do know him best with the Braves say he's a really good guy. He just likes to have fun and he's a kid. He's, he really is like he and Ozzy Albies are like watching two German Shepherd puppies running around and they're nipping at each other and they're having this fun that you're not supposed to have in baseball. Baseball is not supposed to be that much fun. Um, so I enjoy it. I, I enjoy watching their interactions, their energy. Um, Ronald Acuna, I, you know, don't take it from me. Alex Anthopoulos, who's a tremendous judge of talent. Uh, you remember him as a rival with the, the Blue Jays for a long time. He went to L.A. and got a great education there in the analytics side because uh, he came from a scouting side. And then Braves, I think, got Anthopoulos at the perfect time. He was a perfect fit at the perfect time for the Braves. And he's a big reason why they look the way they do. But uh, Alex Anthopoulos said he's got a great chance to be the best player that Alex has ever had on a team. So he's had some great players on teams. And he doesn't see – he just said – and it was in response to a question I had of Alex. I said, you know, they, 
talked 30-30, then they talked 40-40, now they're talking 50-50 for Ronald Acuna. Is that even possible? And Alex said, there is no possibility I will ever doubt Ronald Acuna. Personally, I love the way he plays. He plays with a lot of fire, uh, plays a lot of intensity. Yeah, okay, sometimes maybe he'll seem a little lackadaisical, but I think baseball needs a player like him, a guy like Bryce Harper as well, the younger talent that kind of adds some excitement to the game. And I think, that, I mean, I'm younger school than, you know, some people might, old, old school people don't like the bat flips and the home runs and they think there's too many strikeouts. But I think the flair that he brings to the game is really cool to watch. We all know he's a very talented player and uh, that he could do, you know, a lot of things in the outfield. He makes some great catches. He's very strong at the plate. But I think it's a joy to watch, and I think he should just keep doing what he's doing. All I know is I've got a front row seat to the most exciting and entertaining team in baseball, probably, and certainly that I've been around in my career. Um, I've never seen a Braves team, not since, even back, you know, when you go back to the 90s, there were always, there was always a hole or two in the Braves lineup. The pitching was just, you know, when you whole rotations full of Hall of Famers, that's how they were able to, to carry through 14 straight division titles. This team has pitching and it has hitting and it has de defense and it has speed. I don't see any weaknesses on this team. And one other thought on, on Acuna and, you know, lapses or being lackadaisical and I'll, I'll just wear out this German shepherd puppy thing um, because I'll be out, out in the driveway trying to teach him to play ball. Let me throw a tennis ball. You go fetch it. You bring it back to me. I give you a treat and we do it again and again. Well, he'll go do it once and get the treat maybe twice, and then that third time he sees a, a fly over here. And so he just breaks off his route and goes to do something completely different. And that's, I think, you know, Ronald may have lapses, but they're not because he d isn't trying. They're not a lack of effort. He may get, uh, you know, distracted at times, but he's a, he's a young pup. We've got to let him grow up. Last year, I hate to bring Braves fans back who might be watching this. 2019 at NLDS against the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm, I'm sorry, Peter. I'm, I'm out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching this game. I'm at my uh, office and Newsday on Long Island, um, and we have the game on there. And I'm watching this first inning and run after run after run or score. And I'm saying, what is going on here? And before you knew it, 10 runs were on the board. In game five, the deciding game, of the NLDS, what's as a broadcaster announcing the game? What what's going through your head as you're seeing this transpire? Well, first it was shock that they fell behind right away, and Fulton Evich had thrown a great game against the Cardinals earlier in the series, um, but then they started hitting. It was like they were hitting ground balls like two inches inside the first base bag, and then the next guy would hit one two inches inside the third base bag. Fair balls into the corner, just runs, runs, runs. And so it, it started out as just surprise and then shock and then horror. <laughs> and then I started wondering who in this franchise pissed off the baseball gods because <laughs> everything, so, there's got to be something going on here. There's no way that this can be happening. So, I mean, there are a lot of people in baseball that talk a lot about the baseball gods. You, you got to keep yourself in line and, um, because we all know there's a lot of luck involved in, in this sport. There's so many different variables. So, but as, as a broadcaster, I had to quickly transition to the, the way I looked at it, Pete, honestly, was this is going to be the most challenging broadcast of my entire career. Mm -hmm. And as such, 
I don't look back on it with quite the bitterness that probably most everybody else does about that game because I had to find a way to navigate through nine innings of a quagmire and a, a sold out crowd that came in sky high. They were there hours before the game. It was like going to a Packers game where they're tailgating for days before it even gets close to kickoff time. And, and all of a sudden, it, you know, the balloon didn't just, the air didn't come out. It popped, it exploded. And so the shock and horror that you saw around the stadium and people didn't know what to do. And um, so we kept it low key. We tried to make it as interesting as we could once the game progressed some more. And it was apparent that no miraculous, I mean, we always hold out for, well, it's still early. You know, you start out like that, but when you get into the middle innings and they're only pulling away, you start, we started going into more of a retrospective um, on our broadcast about, you know, it was still a great season. Um, this is still, this team is still ahead of schedule, not supposed to be doing this like they've done the last two years. Um, there's, uh, when you think about spring training of 2020, little did we know um, that the, the future was going to be incredibly bright. The, the pitching staff, as we've been watching it ripen on the vine, for the last two years. And, and when we got to spring training, we saw Sean Newcomb looked awesome. Kyle Wright looked awesome. All the starters were throwing the ball really well. The bullpen looked great. Uh, Alex Anthopoulos did a great job lengthening the pen. Anyway, we knew there, was a, there were a lot. Of, we didn't know the pen was going to be transformed the way it was, but um, we knew there were going to be a lot of good things to talk about in the future. So, you know, let's not, uh, let's not put our nose in our Cheerios right now. Let's just take it. And come back and see if maybe next year the baseball gods will piss off, get pissed off by some other team. <laughs> the next question I have for you is kind of a two-part question. Home run calls by announcers are well-known. John Sterling's hit as high as far as gone. Michael Kay, see ya. Um, Gary Cohen is out of here for the Mets. Bob Uecker had his own home run call. Did you feel it was necessary to have a home run call? And the second part of the question is, what was your greatest call of your broadcasting career in your mind? Hmm. You That'll be a tough one. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, it'll give me back, – back of my head can be thinking about that one. Um, I, you know, I don't – it's – everybody should do their, their own thing. You know, I would never tell anybody – in fact, I tell young broadcasters when they ask me for advice, I'm like, I'm not really any more qualified to tell you what I like and don't like about your sound than – an average listener who's listened to a bunch of baseball games. Um, so I don't try and tell people how to do it. In my case, I grew up with broadcasters that did not have signature home run calls that they just did every time. Um, you know, Skip and Pete and, and Ernie, uh, they all kind of did it. I think Milo Hamilton might've had a few extra things that he would work in when he was working with the Braves on a regular basis from my uh, childhood. But, and then my, you know, my favorite football broadcaster was Larry Munson, who was one of the most colorful sportscasters in the history of sportscasting. And he was a University of Georgia play-by-play man, legend, I mean, truly legendary. And I didn't even like Georgia, but I would listen to the games because of Larry Munson. And um, he, ne he never called the same play the same way. And so I just, it's not that I've made a conscious decision to not have a home run call. If I'd have thought of the clever one that I knew was unique and Maybe I'd have gone all in. I guess I could still sit here in the wintertime and try and write down call, you know, home run calls and uh, see, see what one, you know, you can get a t focus group and test them out and all that. But I just try to call the game in the moment and try not to be, 
you know, too repetitive. It works great for those guys. Those calls are all really, really good. Ukes is one of my favorites, if not my favorite, because it was born of uh, honest intentions. When he was a player, you probably are aware he spent a lot of time on the bench. So mm-hmm. when you're on the bench, you're doing some cheerleading. So when, when his Cardinal teammates would hit long fly balls toward the, the fence, he would root them over the fence. Get up, get up, get out of here. And then that became his home run call. Get up, get up, get out of here, gone. So I, I think that's awesome because that was born from his, the things he used to say naturally and spontaneously as a, as a player um, in, with cheering his teammates. So uh, I, don't, I don't think there's a good way or a bad way to do it. You know, you do it your own way. I, I, um, I'm comfortable not having one. If I find one tomorrow or you think of one, give me a call. <laughs> um, best call ever? I don't know. The Acuna, Acuna Grand Slam was a, a good call. Um, Jason Hayward's first swing as a major league player, he ripped one out against Carlos Sambreno to the right field bullpen and all the hype. It was his first home game as a brave and the hype, huge crowd opening, you know, home opener. Uh, and I, th- I think I said, uh, this stadium is upside down at the end at, as I, after I let the crowd roar for a long time, um, Brooks Conrad and the Braves rallied from like seven runs down in the ninth inning on a, matinee at Turner Field against the Cincinnati Reds and I was working the game with Mark Lemke and we actually started counting down in in the late innings like where the Braves batting order would be if they could come all the way back and and Lemke's like and this is not something we we've ever done like we just I I think he and I both had an instinct that the Reds knew this game was over and they were they were going to they were going to be on the bus and on the charter and going home and that they might they they could possibly check out if we could put a little pressure on them and Braves put a lot of pressure on them. They finally loaded up the bases, uh, tying runs on, and then Brooks Conrad hit a fly ball to left field that Lance Nix climbed the wall and had it. He got leather on it, but it went over the fence for a walk-off grand slam. And I don't know if it was my prettiest call at all because what I was doing was screaming. <laughs> um, I usually try not, try not to lose control, but – even I, even though we've been counting it down and we had identified Brooks Conrad's spot in the batting order as where it could happen from three or four batters earlier. And then Brooks Conrad comes up there. He thought Lance Nix had caught it. So he rounded first and he took both hands and took his helmet and slammed it on the ground and, and basically ran out of the baseline, but they didn't call him. Then he, what was everybody cheering about? And then he realized it was, it was out and so he had to turn around and he flew around the bases. But that was, I don't know if it was the best call, but it was the, one of the best moments, if not the best moment of my career. Growing up as a Georgia native, who was your favorite athlete, whether it be baseball, football, whatever sport it might be? Did you have one specific athlete growing up that you really enjoyed over the other ones? You know, I probably, it'd be hard for me. Um, I'd feel like I was cheating on my favorites if I didn't just, I, I'll give you one from each sport. Can I do that? Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to go Spud. I'm going to go Spud Webb from the Atlanta Hawks, since he was the only person I knew that was shorter than I was. And you know, winning the slam dunk contest. I mean, how can you not love Spud Webb? Um, Eddie Lee Ivory, running back for Georgia Tech, loved Eddie Lee Ivory. Sat there and listened to a radio broadcaster broadcast from Al Serraldo where he ran for like 300 yards in a game, and um, he was he and. Tech wasn't that good those years for the most part, like the Braves. I didn't have many winning winning days as a fan growing up. 
I would say probably Steve Bartkowski is the Falcons, probably the best quarterback we had in my youth. Um, and he was a big name guy. And then baseball wise, you know, there, there are a lot of options. I mean, I, I was a kid when Henry Aaron, you know, broke the record, but he, he wasn't around too much longer than that. Um, so I'd go with a player that was more in my developmental, you know, teenage years and say Dale Murphy. Uh-huh. And he's a friend now, which is really special. That's awesome. So the final thing, I appreciate you giving me all this time today. There's a lot, been a lot of back and forth lately between the Major League Baseball owners and the players regarding if there's going to be a season this year, how many games, how much pay is each player going to receive. So a lot of back and forth, a lot of different proposals. It seems like maybe they're getting closer, hopefully. It's kind of getting late here a little bit with the time that we have. We're already at the beginning of June, and still no deal has been reached. Have you heard anything as far as when they might return, or what are your thoughts on what's been going on between the two sides the last couple of weeks? Well, I'm just doing what you're doing, which is trying to read the tea leaves. Um, we know both sides are posturing at this point. I, I'm going to go back to the basic fundamentals when you're trying to figure out what the eventual outcome will be, and we don't know. I go back to the basic fundamentals of how, how motivated are the two parties to find common ground. And I think Major League Baseball is desperate to find common ground, although they do say that if the players don't take additional salary deferments or cuts that it it will actually cost the MLB teams more to play than it would to not play. And I'm sure the players association is carefully examining their economic reports to see why MLB believes that, but it makes sense. I mean, if you told me tomorrow that soon you could have like one in four seats would be filled by a fan or maybe one in two seats where you have a family of four over here. I mean, if you could, if you can do some, creative distancing, I don't see why it won't be long before you're going to have fans in the stands. So hopefully that economic outlook will end up being better than it looks. And hopefully the players and the owners can build contingencies, you know, for what what happens if there are fans in the stands and what happens if there are never any fans in the stands? What if we get half the stadium? You know, what if we can't, you know, so, but I think that both sides, I know the players are motivated. They don't get paid if they don't play games. So, um, I, I, you know, maybe the really rich players can afford to just say, you know, I'm kind of, I'm not, I don't like the environment. I, I don't want to put my family in jeopardy. I'm going to sit out because I've already got $100 million or $400 million in the bank. But for the average Joe, and, and my feeling has been for a while, that sooner or later, Major League Baseball will tell the players, we're going to play some games. We're going to stage games. If you want to come play, come play. If you don't want to play, don't play. If we can't fill these teams with major league players, we'll fill them with minor league players or college players or high school players. We'll fill them with the broadcasters, whatever we have to do. But we'd like everybody to come. We've made a good offer. Um, I don't know that an ultimatum is near uh, coming out or anything like that, but um, I like to just go back to being optimistic and say both sides are really motivated. I, I feel like they can find enough common ground to have some baseball this year. And the final thing I'll leave you off with goes right off that question. How much are you personally missing being behind the microphone and calling Atlanta Braves games? I have the best job in the entire world. I, I can tell you that. And this team makes it exponentially more fun. So 
yeah, it's, I'm, it's, it's breaking my heart. I feel like my Georgia Bulldogs football team is going to be, you know, hell on wheels this fall. And I don't know if they're going to be playing and my baseball team is not playing right now. So, you know, we're all sad. We're all torn. We're all baffled, befuddled by all the events of 2020 so far. Um, but, uh, you know, sooner or later that microphone will be there and I'll be ready. Well, Jim, pleasure getting a chance to talk to you today. All the best to you and your family. Hopefully you guys continue to stay safe uh, during these times and hopefully we get baseball back soon and we could all enjoy the national pastime. I'm sure we will sooner or later, hopefully much sooner. Thank you very much for having me on, Peter. I really appreciate it. You got it, Jim. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thank you everyone for listening today. For more straight shooting content, you can find me on Twitter at PistolPete11. That's Pistol with two L's, Pete 11. Or subscribe to my YouTube channel under Peter Kersick Jr. That's Peter, K-E-R-S-I-C-H Jr. Or you could do both. For now, stay safe and I'll talk to you soon.